If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You also may want to put an envelope or a bookmark in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be looking at those two passages together. Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel chapter 11. We are in the second week of a three-week series on prayer as a pathway to greater intimacy with God. That really, if you want to be intimate with anybody, the way that you develop intimacy with someone is spending time with them, talking to them, communicating with them about deeper things, meaningful things. That's really how you create intimacy. If you saw somebody you wanted to get to know and you go to lunch and you you talk to them, you listen to them, and there's communication there. Prayer is a pathway to intimacy with God. Unfortunately, for the way many of us practice prayer, we don't leave a lot of room for intimacy to to develop with God. Because we go into prayer with our list of things we want to say to God. We've got people we want to pray for. We've got things we want to ask God for. And so we go in and we sort of say all the things we want to say, ask all the things we want to ask, check all the boxes, and go about the rest of our day. And when we do that, we don't leave a lot of room for God to communicate to our hearts. For God to connect with us. We're just sort of telling him, downloading him everything we want to say without ever really listening and having deep communication. That doesn't develop uh, intimacy. If, if you tried that with somebody in your life, somebody important in your life, it, it would not develop intimacy. If all I ever did was when I sat down with Sherry was to tell her all the things I wanted from her and, and all the things, that, the facts that I had about, we had about our kids, you know, we just exchanging information about where we need to be and when we need to be there, but we never connected and listened to each other, uh, intimacy would suffer. And the same is true in our relationship with God. So it's not just that prayer develops intimacy with God, it's the kind of prayers that we pray. And so last week and next week and this week, we're looking at specific prayers that develop intimacy with God. And to do that, we're looking at Psalms, the book of Psalms, which is basically a collection of prayers that is in your Bible. They serve as sort of models and templates for for how to pray. And uh, so last week we looked at reflective prayer. This is the kind of prayer that invites God to evaluate your heart and your mind. and It invites God to speak to you. It's a prayer that requires more listening than talking. So we already have a problem, right? Because we keep getting distracted with all kinds of you know, electronic devices and busyness and so many things we just don't take the time to listen to God. We looked at Psalm 139 when we talked about reflective prayer. And verse 23 and 24 of Psalm 139 is an invitation. And it, this is what it says to God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me And lead me in the way everlasting. But then we have to give space for God to do exactly what we asked him to do. To search our hearts and and to know us. Now this past week, uh, there were uh, over 50 of us who participated in a day of prayer and fasting. In the prayer vigil that was going on. If you missed it, we're going to do it again in June. The first Tuesday and Wednesday of June. So I hope you'll sign up and be a part of it. But for those who participated, uh, you had time, maybe in the prayer chapel or maybe somewhere else, to just sit and reflect. And it's hard. It's It's a muscle that you have to exercise. A discipline that you have to train for. But I know some of you practice this reflective prayer and when you got to that part of the prayer uh, reveal any offensive way in me some of you have told me you know 
God said something to me, and I've been wrestling with it all week, that he uncovered something in my heart, a a thought, a a lie, a deception, something that I need to ask somebody to forgive me for. And now, all week, I've been struggling with how to do that. That's reflective prayer. That's developing intimacy with God. And reflective prayer leads us to the second kind of prayer that I want to talk about this week that also deepens our intimacy with God. And, And these are prayers of repentance. And to look at this prayer repentance, I want us to look at a model in Psalm 51. It was just read for us just a minute ago. It's a very famous, famous psalm. It was written by King David at a particular time in David's life when David had just had the biggest failure of his entire life. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at the story behind the psalm to help us better understand these prayers of repentance. And 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 I don't know if you're a believer, if you're, you don't come to church much, maybe this is the first time back in church, and when we talk about prayers of repentance, it's maybe important for me to describe what that is. Because a prayer of repentance is not a prayer of apology. A, a, an apology is just telling somebody, I'm sorry for what I did to you. But that is no guarantee that you're not going to continue to do that behavior again and again and again. Some of you have had experience where someone has apologized to you and then they've continued to behave the same way they've always behaved and at some point their apology meant nothing to you because you knew that it was words they were saying without any change of behavior, change of actions. Uh, Repentance is different than that. Repentance says, I am going in one direction and I am repenting of that direction. I am changing course altogether. I am now going in a different direction. So prayers of repentance are more than just saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. It is a recognition that I have been headed in the wrong way and I need to totally change course. So let's look at this story to set up this prayer that David prayed. So uh, open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And let's look at this story. David was, of course, the second king of Israel. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. He had a deeply personal and intimate relationship with God. And yet he finds himself in a situation where he violates God's commandments. He violates the relationship he had with God. And he does incredible damage to people around him. 2 Samuel chapter 11 beginning in verse 2. David at this point is pretty established. He has sent his armies off. They're doing battle somewhere else. But David has not gone out with them. And it says this, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now David's first mistake was a failure to understand his own weakness. Now it was not a sin that David was on the roof of his house and as he's looking over the roof of his house, he saw a woman bathing. That's not a sin in itself. The sin came when he failed to bounce his eyes away from that. Now, men, let me talk to you for a second. It is so important that you guard your heart by guarding your eyes. That you shift your eyes away from things that you know will lead you into temptation and temptation into sin. And I can't say this enough because our media and the culture we live in, there are so many images that even the, the culture would say, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing, it's just beauty. Except you know, come on, you know deep inside your heart that it stirs something inside of you. And you ought not be looking. You ought to bounce your eyes away. 
And that's what David didn't do. He failed to understand his own weakness, his own vulnerability. He was at a vulnerable point in his life and he failed to understand his own heart. This is why reflective prayer is so important. Because reflective prayer can keep you in touch with God and it can keep you away from temptation and sin. Because if you're constantly asking God, God, would you reveal my heart to me? Help me know where I'm vulnerable then God can protect you. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can I get an amen? Amen. The flesh is weak. And so what did Jesus say? Pray. Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is why it's so important for you to have an intimate relationship with God so that God is constantly pointing out those weaknesses. It's what David, at this stage of his life, wasn't doing. Look what happened next in verse 3. A glance turned into a stare, and a stare turned into action. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's closest associates. He was one of the 30 men who was with David before David was king while he was running for his life. So this was not just some soldier, some stranger, some neighbor that David didn't have a relationship. This was somebody who was close to him. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So now David's got a real situation on his hands. What started as a glance turned into a stare, turned into actions and now those actions have had consequences and now David is faced with a choice what is he going to do well he's got a he's got an option right now he could repent he could change course or he can double down and guess what he chooses to do he chooses to double down and isn't that what many of us have done many times we reach that point, we reach that, reach that crossroad where we have an opportunity to repent of our sin, but we don't repent of our sin. Instead, we double down in it. That's what David did. So he creates this whole scheme where he brings Uriah off the battlefield. And he tries to get Uriah to go into his wife so that it will look like the baby is Uriah's. Only Uriah has more character than David does. And Uriah says, hey, as long as my men are out on the field, I'm not going in and enjoying the comforts of my home. I'm just going to sleep on your porch. Well, that doesn't help David's cause. So what does David do? Instead, David puts Uriah in a situation on the battlefield where Uriah, it looks like a valiant death, but in fact, it's murder. David has him put on the front lines and then tells everybody to pull back. And so Uriah is killed. And then David sends for Bathsheba and brings her into his house and he marries her. So basically, he has now lusted after a woman who wasn't his wife. He's coveted. He has committed adultery. He has lied. And he's committed murder. And 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, a pretty understated verse says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You think? I mean, we're not talking a little mess here. This is, this is a big mess, and it is a mess that is growing, and it is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So Nathan the prophet comes to David. I tell you, Nathan is, to me, one of the heroes of the Bible. He comes in, and he just tells David like it is. He calls David out on his sin. And David, at this point, is still faced with a choice. He can double down in his sin and be unrepentant, which would probably mean that Nathan would die, 
or he can repent. And Nathan comes right in and basically says, David, you are the man who's done this. And look what David says in 2 Samuel 12, 13. I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin. He owns it. There's something liberating about that too. Some of you are living in situations right now where you are continuing to lie and you're continuing to double down and you're continuing to come up with excuses and you're continuing to try to hide things and it's exhausting for you. You're exhausted by it. Can I just tell you that that is a burden that you are carrying of your own making? And the way to lift that burden isn't to double down and try to lie better. It's to repent of the sin and turn away from it, which is what David finally did. And this is where his prayer of repentance comes. So turn in your Bible to Psalm 51, and let's take a look at this prayer of repentance. This prayer contains three, I think, important elements, three requests that David asks. And I think they make up, really, um, a, a good model for us, a good template for us when we pray prayers of repentance. David asks that God would cleanse him, that he would restore him, and that he would use him. So let's look at each of those as we look through Psalm 51. First, David says to cleanse me. Look what it says in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. We'll come back to that word in a minute. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Watch, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Some of you felt that. Like it's always there. You feel like everybody knows. You feel like other people are talking about it. It's always, the sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now David clearly sinned against Uriah. He clearly sinned against Bathsheba. But every sin against another human being is ultimately a sin against God. Because God created every person in his image. You've never met an ordinary human being. It doesn't matter what they believe, what color their skin is, what language they speak, how much money they have. Every human being was made in the image of God. Therefore, every time you sin against a human being, you are sinning against God. When you are short with the clerk in the grocery store, it is not the clerk that you are sinning against. It is God. Your ex-husband, who is a real jerk to you, and when you do something out of vengeance or spite, you're not just sinning against your ex-husband, who may deserve it. Come on, right? If that person was made in the image of God, and he was, she was, you're sinning against God. It's against you and you only that I've sinned and done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, anything that God would do in judgment is right and just. David's saying, I deserve whatever it is. I deserve it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me? Now, David is talking about two categories of sin. And this is really, really important for us to understand the nature of sin. Two categories. One, he's saying, I have, trans I have committed transgressions. Transgressions is like this idea, you're on a path. You're on a direction. And you deviate from the direction. It's when your GPS says recalculating. You have transgressed from the direction that you're traveling app has told you to go okay a transgression means you willfully chose to deviate from God's path we've all done this all of us there has been something in your life some activity in your life where you have willfully knowingly chosen to go against the direction that God would 
have sent you. And let's just say today that you're not a Christian. Let's just say that you don't even believe in God. Here's what I know is true about you. There are, there are goals and expectations you have for yourself, and you haven't even lived up to your own goals and expectations, right? So even if it's just against yourself, you've sinned. We've all done that. So transgressions. The second kind of sin that David is ta- talking about, the second category of sin, is our sins basically from, uh, from uh, uh, the origin of our birth, that we're born in sin. When, when David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, he was not saying that his mother sinned in his conception, that she'd had an affair or that somehow it was, it was sinful for her and her father to have sex. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he was born into sin. It just happened. It's original sin. It, it, means, it means, how many of you have had, ever been around preschoolers or raised How many of you have raised preschoolers in the house? You know I'm right. You know this is right. They are born sinful. And any of you in the room who are saying, no, they're not. They're sweet babies. They're not sinful. How can you say that? You've never had children. (laughs) Nobody had to teach my children how to lie. Right? I mean, they just did it on their own. How many of you had children who bit? They were biters. Where did they learn to? How did they learn to do that? Because they're born into sin. Nobody had to teach my kids how to fight. They just fought instinctively, and they were good at it. (laughs) We're born in it, but it's bigger than even that. Listen, this, this idea of original sin is bigger than just original sin. It's systemic sin. And this is where it gets really, really complicated. Because we live in a culture, we live in a world that is so inundated with sin that you cannot go through a day without unwillingly participating in it unintentionally participating in it let me just give you two examples if you were to look at the tags in your clothing and on your shoes and then you were to do some research into the labor labor practices of the country that your clothes came from there is a possible a real possibility that there was human trafficking involved in the production of the clothes that you paid money for that you are now wearing The coffee that you drink in the mornings. There is a good possibility that the coffee you're drinking came from beans that were harvested in Africa from a farm that commonly practices going into villages and kidnapping children so that they can have cheap slave labor in order to to grow the coffee and harvest it and so that you can have it cheaper in America. And you participate in that by the coffee you buy, by the clothes you wear. Now, now, this is a whole other message, and I don't want to get all, because you think, well, then what am I supposed to do? That's the point, isn't it? There's nothing you can do. I mean, you can try to be careful about what you buy, and you should be, but at the end of the day, we live in a world, we live in a, that is so inundated and infected with sin, you don't even mean to participate in it, but you participate in it every single day. And this is what David's saying. There have sins I have committed by choice. And then there are just the fact that I was born in this world that is, that is plagued with sin. And they're both, they're both impacting me. Do you feel that? I mean, does that make sense to you? You sense that when you watch the news. And you hear about some of the controversies and the problems that go on in our world. And you think, there's no solution for There's no easy solution for that. 
There's no solution apart from God's grace that would bring that about. So two categories of sin. David uses three words specifically when he talks about this cleansing. He says, blot out my transgressions, cleanse me from sin, and wash my iniquity. Now, those three words each have an important meaning. To blot something out really is a term of indebtedness. That when we sin, we make a debt. And David's saying, I can't pay the debt. And so it's like you take ink before, you know, there was any computers or any ways to erase, and you would blot the, blot the ink on the debt to erase it. David's saying, God, I need you to blot out my sin, blot out the debt I owe, cleanse me. Meaning the Old Testament, anytime you came into contact with a, a defiled body or somebody who was sick or somebody who was dying, you were considered unclean. And there were cleansing rituals that you had to go through in order to be able to approach God in worship. He's saying, cleanse me. And he's saying, wash me, basically referring to the garments. That in the Jewish mindset, if you were to change clothes, changing clothes was a symbol of a new beginning. So what David is saying is he's saying, God, I've sinned. I need you to blot out my sin, take care of the debt. I need you to wash me because I'm impure. And I need you to give me a new beginning, a change of clothes. I I, I know I've had this experience, and I I know everybody in this room has had this experience where you just feel dirty. Something you did, something you said, a time when you stayed and you shouldn't have stayed, whatever it was, and you just leave and you feel like, God, would you just cleanse me? This is David's prayer of repentance. God, would you just cleanse me, blot out the debt, cleanse me, and give me a new beginning. The second thing David prays for is that God would restore him. So restore me. Verse 9, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We'll come back to that in just a second. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Lead, let me hear and let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your, from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So, so David's asking God to restore three things to him that sin destroys in us. Now we don't think about this when we're about to sin. But, but sin always comes at a cost. There's always a price we pay because sin is going to destroy something inside of us. And David talks about each of those things and asks God to restore them. The first thing he, that it, sin destroys is our heart. He says, God, would you, would you restore my heart? Would you create in me a clean heart? Would you teach me wisdom in my secret heart? Now, this goes back to a little bit about what we said last week. When we said in, in, from Psalm 139, search my heart and know me, O God. Jeremiah said, the heart among all things is deceptive. That, that your heart doesn't always react to what is true and what is right. There's just feelings that it has. And so what David is saying is, God, would you dig past all those things and would you just speak to my secret heart? Would you create in me a clean heart? I need a new heart in order to connect with you and relate to you. The Apostle Paul, we referenced this last week. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, verse 15, he says, I do not know why I do what I do. 
The bad things I don't want to do, I keep doing those things. The good things I know I should do, I don't do those things. I don't understand my own heart. And David's saying, God, would you, would you teach me in my secret heart, a heart that hasn't been infected by sin? Would you restore me? Would you restore my heart? Would you create in me a clean heart? Because apart from you, there is no clean heart in me. The prophet Jeremiah goes on later and he says that God would eventually replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. That he will give us a new heart. That our hearts are broken and we need to ask God to restore it. The second thing sin destroys is joy. And this almost doesn't need explanation. Sin may bring you pleasure even as it's destroying your joy. There is a difference between pleasure and joy. And for many of us, we will sacrifice joy for pleasure. And we live in a culture that is addicted to pleasure. And so we just try to please ourselves in any way we can. And what happens is pleasure becomes a medication for what's really missing in our life. And what's missing in our life is joy. And sometimes it's by seeking the pleasure that we're sinning, moving away from God, that the joy is robbed. And so what it creates is almost a vortex, a bottomless pit where we seek the pleasure and the pleasure is sin that's, that's stealing more joy, which means we only need more pleasure. And on and on and on it goes. Deeper and deeper and deeper. And David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Some of you have been missing joy for a long time. I'm just, I'm just going to say, it's only through repenting. It's only through turning back to God. It's only by asking God to restore that joy in you that you'll find it. And the third thing sin destroys is a right spirit. David says, Lord, would you give me a righteous spirit, a spirit that does the right thing, a willing spirit. I don't want to behave. I don't, want to, I don't just want to modify my behavior. I want to want to please you. That's a good prayer, by the way. I want to want to. It doesn't say you want to. It says you want to want to. Some of you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't really want to do that, but I want to want to do that. Hey, God will answer that prayer. Just start praying that. For some of you, that's a, that's a big enough prayer for you this week. Lord, I want to want to please you. And see if God doesn't change something inside of you. David says, restore me, God. Restore my heart. Restore my joy. Restore a right spirit. And finally, he says, use me. Use me. Verse 13 Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. There are two ways that God can use our sin. And and some of you, many of you in this room, you have modeled this. You You are great examples of this. But, but it's this idea that it's not just that God has cleansed you and God has restored you, but then it's a willingness to say, God, would you take what I meant for evil and use it for your good? Will you use me? Two ways that he does it. First of all, by teaching other people. Do you know the sin, the transgressions that you have committed can become an opportunity to teach other people about God's grace and mercy And to help them avoid the same temptations and pitfalls you've fallen into. But you know what that requires from you? It requires a a transparency and authenticity on your part. You have to be willing to share maybe what might be some of the most shameful and embarrassing stories of your life. Not everybody's willing to do that. Many of you are. Many of you are walking with people 
who you're trying to use your past sins and God's grace and mercy in your life to teach other people. Maybe, maybe it has to do in recovery and you're trying to talk to other people about your experience and how the sin of giving into the bondage of those kind of things and you're, God's turned that around and you're using it. Maybe for you it has something to do with divorce and, and, and you, you've been through a hard time. You've been through a difficult marriage. Maybe it was your fault. Maybe it wasn't your fault. But you're willing to say, God, would you use this for your glory? Even though it wasn't good itself, God can use it. So we use it to teach others, but we also use it as an example of God's righteousness and mercy. It brings glory to God when we're willing to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. When when people see the evidence of God's grace and mercy in your life, it brings glory to God. And we become less as he becomes more. And we are humbled as he is exalted. But we have to be willing to say, God, cleanse me. God, restore me. God, use me. Now, before we finish, David has a problem. This is great, beautiful prayer. People have sung it. People have memorized it. There's still a big problem. And it's your problem too. And here's the problem. Praying a prayer of repentance or performing any religious act or religious sacrifice will not save you from your sins. Praying a prayer of repentance, no matter how eloquent, no matter how heartfelt, is not enough to save you from your sins. Listen to what David said in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Let's face it, David was rich. He could have offered any sacrifice. He could have sacrificed bulls every day for the rest of his life. He said, that's not enough. There were no provisions in the law to forgive the sins that David committed. Let's look. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Let's just take two of David's sin, adultery and murder. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Not a lot of grace in that. Numbers 35, 31, and 32. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. See, David had no right to ask for God's mercy and forgiveness. The law did not make room for it. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's, well, that sounds like David's problem, but that's not really, that's not really my problem. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he messes that up, doesn't he? He jacks the law up so high you don't even have any hope. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you not to look lustfully at a woman, or you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You say, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. I tell you, I tell you not to be angry with your brother, or you stand in need of judgment. And suddenly, every single one of us find us in David's position, That there is nothing we can say, there's no sacrifice we can give, there's no prayer we can pray that would bring about forgiveness. So what happened in David's situation? Turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, and see what happened. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has, listen to this phrase, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who has been born to you shall die. Nathan said, God is going to put your sin away. And that should cause you, and it should cause me, to feel uncomfortable with God. 
How can God just say he's going to put David's sin away? Think about what's happened. A woman was basically raped. Adultery was committed. Lies were told. A man was killed. A baby will die. And the Lord says, David, don't worry about it. I'm just going to put your sins away. I mean, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a just God. That doesn't sound like a righteous God. If God is just going to willy-nilly let people off the hook for all the bad things they've done, what hope, what hope is there for the world? I mean, that just sounds like a, a tolerant, passive God. The Apostle Paul explains to us what's going on. In, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says how God can both be just and the one who can forgive rapists and murderers and liars and cheats. How can God do both? Listen to what Paul said. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation is a big theological term. Let me just tell you what it means. Propitiation basically means to offer some sort of an atonement or appeasement to a deity. So it would be like if you've ever watched a, a movie and they, you know, they bind up you know, the girl and they're carrying her up to the volcano and they're going to tump her in the volcano in order to appease God so the volcano doesn't erupt. You know those movies? Um, you know, if you've seen those, this sort of human sacrifice, I'm going to present, we're going to throw her in to the volcano and hopefully it appeases God and everybody's happy. That's what propitiation is. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus, the blood of Jesus, was the propitiation for our sin by faith. That as we put faith in Jesus, his blood becomes the thing that, sacri- that is sacrificed for the payment of our sins. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Did you hear that passed over? It's exactly what he said back to David. That he put those sins away. The word is the same in the, in, in the biblical text. That he passed over the sin or he put the sin away. But it was like for David's case, he was putting it up on a shelf and he's saying, all right, David, I'm going to forgive it, but it's going to have to be paid for. There's going to have to be a sacrifice, an atonement made. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, here's what you need to know about your sins. All the sins you've ever committed, whatever sins you're living in now, and whatever sins you will commit, God does not simply sweep our sins under the rug. He himself pays the penalty for our sins as he took on flesh and as he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for the sins that you commit. Every one of them. This is how God can be both righteous and just and at the same time can forgive the sinner. This is how God can still be righteous and just and forgive your sins, whatever they are. And he doesn't sacrifice his justice in order to offer you mercy. Instead, he himself takes in and pays the penalty for us. Listen to how David started Psalm 51, and then I want to skip to verse 17. Verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David was relying on two things, God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. David, by faith, knew that God had a hesed love. Some of you remember that term. A love, a sticky love, a love that would not give up, a love that persisted no matter what. And David's saying, he's crying out, hey, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy, will you, have, will you, will you forgive me? And then look what he says in verse 17. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. 
See, David's confidence in God's mercy was a foreshadow of the work that Jesus was going to do on the cross. David had no way of knowing how all that was going to work out. He just had faith that God was going to forgive it. Here's what we have on the other side of the cross. David stands on one side before it happened. We stand on the, on the back side after it happened. And we know how God can have so much mercy and grace for us. Because it's not just that our sins are being swept under the rug. It's that they were paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. And my question for you this morning is, have you ever repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ to be the one to save you from them? I don't just mean you've said prayers of how sorry you are. I mean... I mean, you have understood that your sin is more than just an occasional deviation from God's path, that you are enmeshed from birth in sin. And no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, you cannot disentangle yourself from it. And sometimes you even choose to do it. Have you ever gotten to the point where you've just said, God, I I repent of that. And I trust the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up. And we're going to have a time of prayer. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just bow your heads for just a minute. And inside your bulletin, there's an index card with a hole punched in it. Some of you have already gone through the stations of the cross, the prayer stations of the cross. And so you've already been to station five. Station five is the cross itself. But, But there's something really significant about this station that applies to what we're talking about today. And if you haven't gone through the stations of the cross, maybe today would just be an opportunity for you to remind yourself what it means that Jesus is the propitiation, the sacrifice for your sin. And just on that card, on one side of it, you can just write down whatever it is. Whatever that sin is that you feel like you're still dirty from it, whatever that thing is that's stealing your joy and breaking your heart and you need restoration, whatever that thing is that you think maybe God someday could even use this, whatever it is, would you just write it down on that card? And as we sing, you can bring it up and you can just put it facing the cross. Nobody will see it. Just put it, hang it on a nail as a symbol that Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin in your life. And for some of you, maybe today would be the first time you've ever, by faith, accepted what Christ has done for you. And your act of repentance might even be to come and say, I, I, I just, I want to receive by faith what God has done for me in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to be cleansed by his blood. I want to be restored by the power of his resurrection. I don't want to say, use me, God, as I follow after Jesus and commit my life to him. Cleanse me by the blood of Christ. I know he died for my sins. Restore my heart through the power of his resurrection. And use me as I seek to live my days and follow after Jesus. Would you just come as we we sing? Some of you, it's just coming and putting something on the cross. Others of you, it's coming in a way of saying, I accept what Jesus has done. And I, I want to just receive that for myself today. I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray. And as the band leads us in worship, I just want to invite you to come as the Holy Spirit leads. Father, we thank you for this incredible, incredible opportunity that we have to be intimate with you through prayers of repentance and confession. Lord, we don't practice confession much. But Father, today in a very real way, we just want to, we 
we just want to confess our sins and, and know what James said is, is true. That if we'll confess our sins to one another and pray for each other, that, that you will heal us. Lord, some of us need healing at the deepest part of our soul. We need cleansing from the sin. We need restored, renewed hearts so that we might be able to be used by you for your glory. So today, Father, today we just ask that as we come in a symbolic way of putting some of those sins on this cross, that it would be more than just an activity that we do, but that that the message of that would permeate deep inside of us. It would transform us and change us as we seek to live in obedience to you. For others who have never received the grace and the mercy of Jesus, as offered through the cross of Christ. The restoration is offered through his resurrection. Father, I pray that today might be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we come as your Holy Spirit leads us. It's in Jesus' name we